talk to you guys uh, today uh, about one particular day, it's actually coming up really soon, that all religions observe as sacred and holy. Uh, it's actually coming up this Friday. Um, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists all celebrate this day as sacred and holy. Do you know what day it is? Payday. <laughs> That's right. Hey, even atheists celebrate payday as sacred and holy. Look, work is a gift from God, okay? And work usually comes with some sort of compensation, all right? Work generates money. Now, 5,000 years ago, uh, your hard work didn't necessarily generate money. It generated crops or more cattle or the ability to kind of barter for other goods that you needed. But today, work usually generates money, right? We work at our jobs, we get a paycheck. Now, uh, there are some jobs that don't generate money. Like my wife works incredibly hard uh, at home with our kids to raise them. She doesn't get paid for that. If you're a student, uh, you're actually paying for all the hard work. Nobody's paying you a dime for all your hard work. But we are all compensated uh, with different things. But most jobs compensate us with a paycheck today, right? Money generates, work generates money. Money generates one of two things. Money generates greed or money generates generosity. Now we're finishing our falling series. And the whole point of our falling series is to talk about things that we fall for, right? We all fall for things that we find beautiful, that we find compelling things that we find attractive. And so paying attention to what we fall for is incredibly important. Because what we fall for will shape the contours of our lives, right? What we fall for not only shapes our present reality, but it also shapes our future reality. In fact, what we fall for shapes our eternity. So it's incredibly important to pay attention to the things that we fall for. And today, we're finishing out our series talking about how to fall for generosity. How do we fall for generosity? What we fall for defines the lives that we live. Now, uh, money is neutral, but its use is not. All right? So uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All right? So it's talking about greed there. Then we also see in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. It's talking about generosity. Those are our two options, greed or generosity. That's what money always drives us towards one or the other. So uh, how do we fall then for generosity? Is it natural? Is it normal? Is it what humanity naturally bends towards? Not according to my kids. <laughs> right? If I make four bowls of ice cream, let me tell you what's about to go down in my house. All right? I will scoop up four bowls of ice cream. I will put those bowls in the table. And the first kid that comes in will instantly scan all four bowls for what? That's right. Which one has the most, right? And if other kids are coming in at the same time, that scan is happening as quick as possible. And then what happens next? <laughs> yeah. Depending upon which bowl they grab, right? Everybody's like, oh, that's the big one. I can get that one, right? That's always how it works out. 
Uh, Yale and the University of Chicago did a joint study back in 2012 to see if kids were naturally generous. Because there's been a lot of studies on pro-social behaviors, all right? So generosity, of course, is a pro-social behavior, and so uh, they wanted to see because there's been a lot of studies that seem to indicate that um, kids tend to be fairly generous. Uh, what this study found, though, uh, was kind of the opposite. Look, listen to uh, what they said. Um, they were looking at how generous five-year-olds were with sharing stickers that they had been given. All right? Not, not stickers they earned, stickers they had been given and were asked to share. So it said, one striking aspect of our results is that children were considerably ungenerous in our task. Indeed, children only showed consistently pro-social or generous behavior in our study in the condition when they could see the recipient and their allocations were fully visible. In other words, when they were given stickers and they said, you can either share this amount or that amount, if the other person could see them, that they were sharing with, and the other person could see how many stickers they were keeping for themselves and how many they were giving away. That was the only condition where kids were generous. If the person couldn't see them, they were always ungenerous. And if the person couldn't see how many stickers were being kept versus how many were being given, they were also always ungenerous. See, one of the things they found is that the children were only willing to be generous if they thought it would affect how the other person was going to view them. Now, we kind of laugh at that, right? Because I'm like, man, my kids can be the exact same way, all right? But it's not just our kids, is it? I mean, it's kind of us, too. Like, we love it if we're generous and everybody notices, okay? We're, we're very, like, excited when, when the secret gets out. Now, nah, we're not going to say that we're excited. But, but that's a reality for, I think, most folks. Uh, my generosity is often connected to whether I think someone's going to notice. Uh, is that actually generosity? Fair question. Uh, there is uh, actually kind of theories that, that we posit. All right? The theory of survival of the fittest. Uh, in other words, like we need to actually uh, pursue what's best for ourselves. You see, if we're going to be honest, we all, I think, bend towards greed rather than gener generosity. Now, it hasn't always been this way. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1. If you need a Bible, uh, we've got some folks that can walk down the aisle and just hand you one. You can follow along. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, you can raise your hand if you need one and they'll make sure to, to grab one for you. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 29. Now, before we get to verse 29, uh, it's important to understand uh, that in chapter 1, the Bible just describes how the world was created, that God creates it, okay, uh, and it is good, and he stocks the world with all kinds of amazing things, trees and fruit and animals and rivers and mountains and, and gold and precious jewels and all kinds of precious metals and beautiful and important and necessary things. He stocks the world full of this. And he creates humanity, Adam and Eve. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 1, verse 29. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 29, then God said, I 
give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God creates all of this. It's his. And what does he do? He gives it. He gives it to to Adam and Eve. Now, if we were going to continue to look on, we would flip over to chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. It said, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. Who's planted the garden? God. God's planted this garden. It's an amazing garden. It's beautiful. It says there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden. There were the tree of life, that's one tree, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, well, we'll get to that in a second. Verse 10, a river water in the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, it winds through the entire land of Havilah. Uh, I don't know why I'm reading all this, we're just going to skip down to 15, you get the idea, it's amazing. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The word work there is cultivate. Okay? He's supposed to cultivate it. Make something of it. With it. Out of it. Alright? We talked about this last year about this time. Where we were doing our series on on, on work. And vocation. And we said that a part of the cultural mandate that God gives to humanity is that we're supposed to partner with God in taking the world someplace. All right, it's God's, but God brings us on to, to rule along, to be his representatives to all of creation, and he wants us to do something with it. So he puts Adam there. He's supposed to work it. God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any of them. This garden that I planted that's mine, I'm giving it to you. You can eat from any tree you want except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Okay? So the tree of life. Eat away. Uh, We don't know what that fruit was like. Okay? Some say that it's actually where a pink drink comes from. Okay? (laughs) Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, It's not. Okay? Pink drink is not. But uh, the tree of life actually allowed Adam and Eve to continue to live. And God just says, look, there's one tree. Everything else you can have, including the tree of life. Just don't eat from this one tree. Okay? The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds. He brings uh, uh, Adam into sleep. He creates Eve from Adam's side. She is his helper. Okay? Don't get that twisted where it means like he's the boss and she's just the helper. God is often referred to as the helper for us. Okay? Adam and Eve are created. They're supposed to be working uh, the ground, cultivating the ground together. It's an amazing thing. God has formed it. And I just want us to take one quick second and realize what this passage is telling us about God. Who he is. Okay? All of this shows us that God is generous. God is generous. It's all his. And yet he gives it freely to Adam and Eve. 
He's like, I want you guys to have, I'm going to plant a garden. I'm going to put you guys in. You can have anything in here. It's just one thing that I don't want you to eat from because if you eat of it, you're going to die. And I don't want that for you. I want you to enjoy life and, and all that comes with it. And so we learn that God is actually generous. He's not a miser. God's not frugal. God is lavish. And this is how the story begins. But all this changes in chapter 3, right? Many of you that are uh, uh, kind of been in church for a while, you know how this goes. We, we get to chapter 3, right? And we read verses 1 through 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, to, to Eve, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Is that really what God said? Because did God say that? No. God has said there's only one tree not to eat from. All the rest of it, they're supposed to. They can. They can enjoy. goes on. It says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the, uh, the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Now, she adds a second thing. Or surely you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. God's holding out on you. God is holding out on you, Eve. He isn't generous. God's actually trying to keep the very best thing from you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. When the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, uh, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made covering Coverings for themselves. The fall. Uh, our series is called Falling. You see, what you fall for has massive implications for the life you live now and the life you will live in the future. You see, what Satan does when he comes to Adam and Eve is he, he says to them, uh, is God really generous? Is God really generous? Does God really love you? Does he actually have your best interest in mind? Does God actually know what he's talking about? You shouldn't trust God. You shouldn't believe God's generous. You should believe that God is holding something back from you. And they fall for the lie, right? Uh, John Mark Comer, uh, which I got a lot of these ideas from. Uh, I really enjoy his writings, his teachings. Uh, he says, the fall turned cultivators into consumers. The fall turned cultivators into consumers. And this is exactly what the study of five-year-olds tells us, right? Instead of being cultivators, instead of believing that God is generous and he's freely giving to us for our enjoyment, we actually start to think that maybe God's holding back on us. And so we choose to disobey God and, and we go from being cultivators to consumers where instead of bending towards generosity, we start to bend towards greed, right? It was the one thing they did not have. And we, we buy into the same lie all the time, don't we? And we know it's a lie. That's what's so, like, shame on us. I mean, shame on Adam and Eve. Like, they should have known better, too. I mean, God had given them everything. He just didn't want them to eat from this one tree because he knew that that tree would kill them. It was love, actually. And we fall into the same traps. Like, oh, if I just had that one more thing. We all fall for the lie of one more thing, right? If I had that new phone, give me that iPhone 11 Pro Max, you know what I'm saying? Some of you are feeling judged right now because you got it in your pocket, right? You're like, oh man, don't show nobody today. 
No, but it's everything, right? It's always that one new thing, that next thing. Like if I, I'm so guilty of this, and I know it's a lie. Right? If I could just get that, what's that, that new relationship. If I, if I could just make that new business, if I, could, if I could just get this new accolade, if I could just get that new job or that new promotion or that new house or that new car. It doesn't even have to be new, God. Just like not the one I'm driving. Give me something better. Like we always want the new thing, but it never satisfied, does it? Oh, I remember how badly I wanted a pair of Bo Jacksons. They were the Nike trainers back in the, in the uh, late 80s. And oh, like these shoes were the bomb, medicine ball leather. I was like, oh, I need me some Bo Jacksons. And I saved up my money and I bought me some Bo Jacksons. And oh my goodness, I felt amazing. Pegging my pants, rolling them up, you know what I'm saying? Did Bo Jackson satisfy me? Nah. Right? There's always something else. Then I needed them Jordan 3s. Right? Then I needed those Reebok pumps. Then I needed those whatever, right? Because there's always something more. We all wind up falling into, and I'm, I'm 45 years old. You'd think I would know better. No, the, 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 the things just change. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to pay attention to the lies, but I think that that is the reality of all of us, right? We all fall for the lie of just a little bit more. I mean, what did Rockefeller say? Richest dude that was alive on the planet at the time, right? And you've all heard this quote before. When asked how much money is enough money, Rockefeller says what? Just a little bit more. <laughs> he had more money than anybody, right? Because that is the lie of the fall. That God is not generous. He's holding something back. And if we could just get that one more thing, our lives would be okay. But it's always a lie. So I think we actually often generally view the world through one of two lenses. One lens is the lens of gratitude. Everything I've been given is a gift. It's not mine. It's on loan from a gracious and generous God. I'm the manager of it. Therefore, it's God's paycheck, God's clothes, God's food, God's drink, God's roof, God's car, God's money. The other lens is the lens of entitlement. I own what's mine. I worked hard for it. I deserve it. It was my good fortune. I put the work in, my gifts, my intelligence, my money, my paycheck. So keep your grubby little hands off of it. God owes me. Now you're like, ooh, that sounds like pretty harsh. Yeah, but if we're honest, I think those are kind of the two options that we often view life with. I did it. Hey, it was my dad that worked hard to pass that on to me. Nobody else deserves a piece. I, 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 was, I worked hard. Did, did I see you getting up at 6 a.m.? Did I see you staying up past midnight? No, I worked hard at it. I earned it. I put in the work when I was at school. Everybody else wanted to party. I didn't party. I, I, I put in the time, and now look what I got. Or, man, I, I don't know how I have what I have. I can't believe that I get to experience what I experience. God has been so gracious to me. He's the one that actually owns it. Everything I have, I got from him. It's not because of how awesome I am. Gratitude or entitlement. Uh, we, we find ourselves in chapter 3, moving from gratitude to entitlement. Uh, you see, in, entitlement 
says that it's ours, that we earned it, and therefore we got to protect it. What happens to Adam and Eve after they eat the tree, the fruit? They instantly realize they're naked, right? You see what happens. They, they somehow, they've been naked the whole time, and they didn't realize it, and now all of a sudden they got to protect certain parts of themselves. They have to hide certain parts of themselves. They run away, and they hide, they hide not only from God, which of course is impossible to do, but they actually try to even hide from each other. They're covering up in front of one another. The move from gratitude to entitlement. Now, uh, the good news is that Genesis doesn't stop in chapter 3. If we were to flip over a few chapters, we're going to find ourselves in chapter 12, all right? This is the story of Abraham. Flip over with me to Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is chosen by God to represent him to the world. And God's going to do something special with Abraham. Read with me starting at verse 1. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and from your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God comes to Abraham. Now, this is interesting. What does this kind of sound like? What's some of the language remind you of? Genesis chapter 2. What God is doing with Adam and Eve. Right? He says he wants to bless them, that they'll be fruitful and multiply. He says the same thing here to Abraham. One thing that's easy for us to miss is uh, when God says he created the earth and he places humanity in it to rule the earth, to cultivate the earth, that word is the word eretz. That's the exact same word that we use here when it says that he's going to give him a land, an eretz, the same word. You see the connections that are being made? Uh, the world has been broken, but God wants to fix what has been broken. God wants to bring it back, and so he's taking Abraham, and he's doing some things with Abraham that he initially wanted to do with Adam and Eve. So he's going to bless them, uh, bless Abram, so he's going to multiply and, and grow. He's going to give him a land. In fact, we're going to read a little bit later. Well, we're not going to read it, but it's in there. That the land is actually the same dimensions, this promised land, as the dimensions that are described for the Garden of Eden. Interesting, huh? You see, this is the pattern that God has. God wants to bless Adam so that he can be a blessing. That's how it always is. God is generous. He continues to show himself to be generous. He blesses, Adam, or blesses Abraham so that Abraham can be a blessing to others. God wants to fix what got broken. But unfortunately, Israel doesn't always do it the way God desires. Okay? They don't realize that the blessings that they have are supposed to flow out into the rest of the world all the time. So God does something that's so generous, so shocking that we almost can't even fathom it. God actually gives himself. Flip over with me to, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians. Now we're going to jump into the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Hang with me, because I know you're like, whoa, we're getting into like, we're doing like the whole Bible today. Yes, we're doing the whole Bible, because it helps us understand a theology of generosity, why this actually matters, and what it actually means for our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, okay? Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. 
is the second letter. We actually think it's probably the third or fourth letter that he's written. Uh, there was only two letters, though, that God desired that would be a part of our uh, scripture, our canon. Okay? And, and so we have this uh, letter here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And there's some uh, cool stuff that's going on. I'll explain it in a second. But start reading with me. We're just going to read one verse, verse 9. God gives himself. It says, for you know the grace, that word could also be translated generosity, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Look, this is the pattern of God. It's God's, God gives it to us. He gives us blessings that we might be a blessing to others. All right? When that's not working, God finally says, you know, I will give the ultimate gift. I will give myself. And so Jesus, in fact, uh, there's a passage in Philippians where Paul says almost the exact same thing in the letter that he writes to the church of Philippi. He's like, yo, Jesus left heaven to come to earth, willing to die on the cross for us. He takes his riches and he spends it on us. So that though we are poor, we can become rich. Like this is the generosity that God has. So you ask the question, how do we move from entitlement, which produces greed, back towards gratitude, which produces generosity? The answer is you have to die. That doesn't sound very fun. You have to die. It's not something that you can just do on your own. In fact, let's jump back and, and, and get a little bit of context in chapter 8. Start reading with me in verse 1. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, but he's going to start talking about another church uh, in the region of Macedonia. Paul had planted churches in Macedonia. In fact, Philippi is in Macedonia. And I think he's talking about the church in Philippi. Although he's referencing all the churches in Macedonia. Listen to what he says. He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. Can you imagine a church like that? Paul, please. You, like, we get that we ain't got a lot, but Paul, you got to let us get out on this giving thing. Like, you got to let us give, Paul. Please let us give. Come on, Paul, don't say no. Let us do it. Please, 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 please. That's what he's saying. He's like, the Macedonians didn't even got much, but they were crazy generous. And he's writing about the Macedonian churches to the church in Corinth. Keep reading, verse 5. It says, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. You want to know how to move from entitlement back to gratitude? How to move from greed back to generosity? You've got to die to yourself. The Macedonian churches, they understood this. They had heard about Luke chapter 5, what Jesus said there. When Jesus said, you want to gain your life, you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose your life for my sake. You see, when you give your life to Jesus, when, when you give Jesus your whole life, then giving him your money, that's easy. That is not a big deal. Uh, it's not yours anymore. You ever given away somebody else's money? Has anybody ever done that? Like, for real, I'm legit asking the question. Just if, if you've ever done, if you've given away somebody else's money before. Okay, one of you. All right. I got to do that last week. 
Remember at the end of the service, I, I told all the college students to come up, okay? Uh, I was able to give a $5, not much, okay, $5 gift certificate to Starbucks uh, to all the college students uh, for a couple reasons. One, I just wanted them to know how much we care about them, and we wanted to bless them. So, like, look, we get it a few weeks into college, like, first papers are getting due. Hey, we just want to say we're glad you guys are here. Uh, I got to give away. It's awesome giving away other people's money. All right? It's fantastic. Especially if somebody comes to you and they say, yo, here's my credit card. I want you to go spend it on this. You're like, sweet. You see, if you give Jesus your life, if you die to self to live to, to Jesus, then, then giving away Jesus' money, it's not that big of a deal. Right? You, you move from a place of entitlement to a place of gratitude. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if that's what TLC was known for? That TLC was just like Around town, TLC was known as that generous church. Man, they are so generous to the poor. Man, they are so generous to one another. That, that church is just generous. They're always begging to try to give more. They're always trying to give more. Sometimes we got to be like, yo, knock it off enough already. Wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, I want us to keep reading in verses 6 and 7. So, so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace or giving, okay, on your part. He's now talking to the church in Corinth. He's like, yo, the Macedonians, they're poor. Them cats was generous like crazy, which is kind of a, a, a reality, even today. If you've ever traveled to a developing nation, you've probably experienced some crazy generosity. I had the privilege of going to Mozambique about a decade ago. Uh, I was there with uh, um, four other people, and we were traveling around to some very, very remote villages, like legit straw, uh, mud, dirt floors. Uh, the people had very, very little. Every village we went to, we always had meat in the evening. Uh, in fact, one village actually um, slaughtered a goat and prepared it, uh, one of the most delicious meals uh, I've ever enjoyed. I get meat pretty regularly. Not every single day, but close to it. In fact, I probably eat way more meat than I ought to. These folks, uh, that was probably a once a year splurge. And they did it simply because we were there. You know how humbling that is? And Paul's like, the Macedonians are going beyond and now he's saying to the Corinthians, who are fairly wealthy, it was a wealthy city, he's like, yo, I I'm asking you to step up. Keep reading in verse 7. He says, since you excel in everything, right? He's like, yo, he's trying to like talk them up a little bit now. He's like, yo, Corinthians, like y'all folks, you're like top of the food chain. You excel at everything. You excel at uh, faith and, and speech and, and knowledge and complete earnestness. You excel in love. See to it that you also excel in the grace of giving. Why does he tell them to excel in the grace of giving? Jesus doesn't need their money. Jesus doesn't need your money. Like, Jesus is good to go, okay? He don't need it. Why does Jesus care about it then? Did you know that almost a quarter of Jesus' teachings... We're connected to money in one form or another. 
Can you imagine if I preached every fourth message was on money? I haven't preached on money in two years. And we're only two and a half years old. <laughs> what if I did every month you knew you was getting a message on money? Why does Jesus care so much about your money? Because Jesus knows that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. A quote from Jesus. And Jesus knows that if he wants your heart, he's got to go to the treasure. Jesus cares about our money because our money is so often connected to where our heart is. Look, we know that that's true. I, I would argue that probably money more than anything else. I think that there's really three things. Our reputation we care a lot about. Our time we care a lot about. But I honestly think, for the most part, our money is the most precious thing. Now, if you are loaded, filthy, rich, maybe you care more about your time. So you're like, man, I'll pay people to do that and do this and do, like, I'll just pay for it. Maybe you can't. But that's very few people. For most of us, our money is the most important thing to us. And so Jesus says, look, I want your heart. And the only way that I'm going to get your heart is if I get your treasure. Because wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be at also. Jesus doesn't need it, but Jesus wants you. He wants to show you that there's a better life. That's why Jesus cares. Flip over to chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. Paul keeps talking to them, and he says this. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. You can continue on to read the rest of that. But let me just make a couple of quick observations. We're not a health and wealth church. I'm not going to tell you, you sow a seed of $1,000 and God's going to birth that into $10,000. Like you give a seed of $10,000 today and God's going to promise you that you're going to get a, a promotion at your job or you're going to get some random bonus or you're going to win the lottery. Like, I don't believe that that's what scripture teaches, but I will say this. Scripture is very clear. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you will reap generously. And he's talking about giving your money. So I can't sit up here and tell you that God doesn't care about it, that God's really cool with however you want to spend your money i'm telling you god wants to bless it he just does and look i i i always struggle with this on the one hand i hate teaching on giving right because it feels self-serving oh you're the pastor well, of course you care about giving uh you don't pay my paycheck i'm just filling in a little secret you don't pay my paycheck god does he always has and he always will uh, here's why I love talking about giving. Because I know that it absolutely is one of the keys to the blessed life. I've experienced it myself. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not perfect, okay? I got a lot. Like this week, I realized God wanted me to teach on this because he had some stuff he needed to tell, tell me. Some stuff he needed to talk to me about. But I also know he has something for his church. 
he has something for his church. We want to be a generous church. We want to be a generous people. We find life in that place, in that space. So let me tell you one thing that it doesn't say. This text does not say you should give 10% of your money. Did you notice that? In fact, quite honestly, I don't think you'll find that anywhere in the New Testament. You're like, whoo, good. I'm really glad to hear that. No, the, the, the key is generosity. doesn't say 10%. doesn't say I'm supposed to tithe. Tithe just literally means 10%. Here's the problem, though, with the 10% tithe. In the Old Testament, there were actually two tithes a year. So that's actually 20%. And not only that, but there was actually a third tide every three years. So on a third year, you actually had 30%. So if you kind of average that out over a year, that'd be like 23.3%. Plus you had other free will offerings and gifts. So let's just say on average, the tithe in the Old Testament would have been a probably around 25-ish percent, give or take. 10%, like that's honestly not that like much compared to what the Old Testament expectation was. But it doesn't say that. It actually says generosity. Now we're like, oh, good. Well, I'm kind of like off the hook. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Every time that Jesus talks about an Old Testament thing, he always ups the ante. You've heard it eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I tell you, love your neighbor. Somebody hits you, I'm telling you, turn the other cheek. Somebody steals your coat, I'm telling you, give them your shirt. Somebody asks you to walk one mile carrying their stuff, I'm telling you, go two miles. Jesus always ups the ante. You're like, what are you telling me, Tori? I'm supposed to give 50% of my money? That seems crazy. I don't. But maybe. Uh, I was with a dude this uh, past week. He doesn't go to our church. Uh, he invited me to go golfing with him. I hadn't gone golfing in like two years. Uh, so I was like, sweet, yeah, man, I'll go golfing. We go out on the golf course, and uh, he paid for uh, my nine holes. Uh, I don't know him that well. Uh, I've interacted with him a couple times. Uh, I know his business partner. Um, his business partner was actually uh, one of my students uh, when I was a youth pastor. Uh, this guy's younger. He's 35. He's 10 years younger than me. And uh, I thought, you know what? Uh, I'm getting ready to preach on, on, on giving. I knew that he had been a deacon at his church, and so I assumed, making some really big assumptions here, that he probably gives. I know that he's generous because he's been generous with me. He had taken me out to lunch uh, about two years ago, one of the first times that we really interacted, and he had paid for lunch then, and he invited me to play golf, and he paid for the golf, and so I'm like, all right, I know he's generous. He was uh, in leadership at a church. He probably gives, so I'm going to take a risk here, and I'm going to ask him a little bit about uh, giving. And so I said to him, I was like, yo, uh, what do, you need to, what do you want to hear from a pastor that, when it comes to your giving? And we had a little bit of a conversation about that. And, and I said, how did you learn to give? Like, what did that look like for you? And he said, well, it actually started when I was young. Uh, he said, uh, have you ever heard of uh, uh, tithing your age? And I was like, uh, nope. And, and I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, when, when you're 10, uh, you know, whatever, you know, you get from your parents or if you have a little job or something, you tithe 10%. And when you're 15, you tithe 15%. And I'm like, oh, dang, I see where this is going. <laughs> I'm 45. <laughs> now I realize he's 35. And phew, was I challenged. Uh, you want to know what's crazy, though? Homeboy is so joyful. You ever met a generous person who's grumpy? Have you? You ever met a generous person that complains all the time? No. No. 
generous. People are some of the most joyful people you're ever going to run up against. I don't even know what it is, but it's crazy, and it's so true. So I, I want to I talk uh, just real. I'm gonna, I got a couple of things that I want to, two stories I want to share with you. But I, but I think there's some questions that always come up when we start talking about giving in the church. Uh, one of them is why, why don't people give? I think it's fair to actually ask that question. Why, why don't people give? Look, uh, our church is doing, for the age and everything, for our age, we're doing okay. We're, we're breaking even right now, okay? Which is great, all right? Way worse if you're not, okay? We're breaking even, but we're not meeting our budget. I don't think God wants us to just keep doing what we're doing. I actually think that we've got a mission that we're supposed to accomplish. And, and you don't actually belong to an organization. You belong to a group of people who are on mission to reach the city of Grand Rapids. Like, that's why we exist. And for us to do that means that we need to continue to be able to grow. We need to be able to grow what we're doing here. We need to be able to love on our kids. We need to be able to care for the needs that are in our community. We need to be able to reach out. God doesn't need your money. But our church doesn't function without it. It's reality. And the thing that you care about, the thing that you fall for, that's the thing you're going to be passionate about. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. If the church does, is not like any part of the, your treasure, the thing that you are passionate about, then it's, it's, it's not going to. If Jesus isn't really anything that you're really that passionate about, nothing's going to come of that. You're not going to give towards that. But if he is, if this church is something you're passionate about, you will give towards that. So why don't people give? The first reason is ignorance. Maybe you're brand new to the faith. You didn't even know that that was a thing. All right, fair. Kudos. Now you know. Uh, the second reason is debt. You have spent more than you've earned. All right? Uh, maybe you're not living within your means. Uh, maybe you continue to, to, to live into the lie of just one more thing. Uh, if you... If you were in debt, it's probably because you didn't have a spending plan and you probably need help to get one. All right? Debt is a killer. All right? You hate it. I know you hate it if you're in debt. You should. I want to help you get out of it. Uh, I'm hopeful that we've got some folks in here that, that uh, are actually really good with their money. And, and uh, if you need help with that, uh, call me. I don't have a plan in place, but I'm telling you we want to help you with that. Here's the reality, though. I don't think that God wants you simply not to give because you're in debt. I'm not telling you to go into more debt. Don't, don't pull out your credit card and start giving to the church or your favorite charity. All right? Don't do that. But I am telling you that there's probably some things in your life that you can cut out. You probably don't need that truck or that car that you really, really like that you still owe 15 k on. Maybe you need to sell the house that you really, really want and go back to renting for a little while. Maybe you need to stop eating out, period. Maybe you need to stop buying anything that's new for a while until you can get out of that so that you can actually create some money. Uh, there's a, a gal in our church, um, her name is, well, I'm not going to tell you her name. <laughs> uh, I will tell you this, though. Uh, she came to faith in this church a couple years ago. Super, super cool story. She got baptized not that long ago. And last winter, uh, she was working on her finances, and she knew God wanted her to start tithing. Uh, she hadn't ever really done that before. And uh, so she started doing, crunching the numbers. This is what she said. Uh, she said, this winter, I had just started a new job. And I figured out the math on 10% of my income to tithe. My income was finally predictable. I was now salaried when previously I was not. However, my income was much lower than it was at my previous job. So I had to cut out some extra expenses in order to cover my bills and afford to tithe. One of which was my health insurance. I prayed about it, and that week I called my health insurance provider to see if I could reduce 
the cost of what I was paying, even though I was already past the enrollment period. I didn't think that they would let me. But I trusted God that not only would he keep me healthy, but he would open up an opportunity for me to change my health care plan. And sure enough, I was able to save by switching to a different plan. In fact, it was almost exactly the difference I needed to tithe 10% of my income. I, I wrote her back after she shared this story with me, and I said, what was life like when you started moving towards greater generosity? I said, was it harder, easier, more joy, less joy? Like, did it enhance your relationship with Jesus? And then I said, don't tell me what you think I want to hear. Just give me the reality because God uh, does different things through our generosity. It doesn't always look the same for everybody, okay? So she says, I was surprised at how quickly it all happened, but I was excited to tell everybody about it. It refreshed, refreshed my trust in God. I felt more secure with my finances even when I didn't have much. I felt included when I sat in on a church budget meeting. She's talking about our ownership meeting. She says, because I know I'm contributing and it makes a difference. Um, the third reason people don't give is because we don't actually trust that God provides what we have. Uh, that's, that's the third reason people don't give. You, you, you're still in entitlement. You think it's because of what you did and how much you earned and how hard you worked for it. And There's three questions that I often get asked. When should I give? Where should I give? And how much should I give? So let me answer those three questions really quickly, and I want to close with a story of somebody else. Number one, when should I give? 1 Corinthians 16 says, uh, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So the first day of the week is talking about Sunday, which is when they gathered together. He's like, look, when you come to church, set aside some income based on what you make. So when should you give? Regularly. You get paid weekly, give weekly. You get paid bi-weekly, bi-weekly. You get paid monthly, monthly. You get paid yearly, yearly. But this isn't a law. I get paid bi-weekly. Brenda and I uh, write our, our tithe check because my wife still likes to write checks. It's awesome. You're like, that's so cute. I literally told somebody that yesterday. It was a young gal. She's like, that's so cute. <laughs> uh, we do it like uh, every month or two. Okay? But our, our giving is regular. That, that, that's what Paul's saying. When should you give? You should give regularly. Number two, where should you give? The place you should give is the place that you're on mission with. All right? The place that's feeding you spiritually should get your first and your best. What does that mean? I, I asked my buddy that's tithing his age, I, like, how much do you like, like, do you give all that to your church? He said, no. He said, uh, it's probably a 60-40 split. About 60 goes to my church, about 40 goes. Uh, for him, though, that, that means 20-some uh, percent is going to his church, and then the extra is going to other missionaries that he feels like God's calling him to support. I think your first and your best should go to your local church if that's the place that you're actually on mission with, if that's the place that you're actually uh, working together with a group of people to try to reach uh, the, the place that you live, the city of Grand Rapids. Uh, Brendan and I, our first 10% always goes to the church. It always has. And then we have other money on top of that, other percentages that we give to missionaries, uh, compassion children that we support, uh, other things, other needs that arise that we just feel like we're supposed to bless somebody with. What if I don't trust that the church spends money wisely? This is question 2B. 
What if I don't trust that the church is actually spending my money wisely? Uh, this is actually from an article. They asked this question, and this was the answer that the author of the article gave. Those who expressed this concern reveal two potential problems that need to be addressed. Number one, the individual's trust isn't in God and the church he's placed them in. Or number two, this individual is attending an untrustworthy church and should consider finding a new one. I wholeheartedly agree. If you are like really have some real serious questions on whether or not uh, the church that you attend is handling your finances wisely, I, I'm not, I don't, you ought to at least engage in it, okay? Just try to find out. And if that's the case, then, then find it. Like, look, if you're going to go to a church and you're not going to support it at all, find a place that you can get passionate enough to support it. I, you're like, man, T's just harsh today. Maybe. Maybe. I, I don't, but I, I think it's actually best for you. I really do. Would I like that to be TLC? 100%, of course. But if it's not, man, find a place that you can get passionate about and get behind. God wants to show you that he blesses our generosity and that we actually find life in generous places because our God is a generous God. How much should I give? Here's the answer. However much God tells you to. <laughs> You're like, no, give me a percentage. I can't give you a percentage. I can't give you a percentage. The, the, the kind of common thing is 10%. And I actually think that that's a great place to start. I really do. I think 10% is a great place to start. But a lot of times, uh, folks are like, man, I've been at like 2% or like I don't even know because I just kind of give a little bit here and there. It's probably really not that much. You figure it out. You're like, I'm at, I'm at 3%. You're like, all right, next year I'm going to get up to 5%. And five years from now I'm going to be up to 10% and I'm going to finally have arrived, right? Like 10% is the goal. 10% is not the goal. If anything, 10% is probably a starting place. If you can't live off of 90% of your income, you're probably not living very well off 100% of your income, are you? And, and, and a budget is probably going to be a, a necessity. A budget should be a necessity for everybody. I hate budgets. Just like for real, we didn't have a budget our first 10 years of marriage. My wife wanted one. I kept fighting it. I feel like they're jails. But what I found is that a budget is actually freeing. When you actually know how your money's being spent. And we put into our budget a fun account. For Torin, it's awesome. I love my fun account, okay? Brenda doesn't get mad at me when I spend my fun account. She's like, we budgeted for that. She's got her fun account. She can spend it on the things she wants. I have mine. Like, it's fantastic. You should have a spending plan. Every single one of us. How much should you give? 10% is probably a good starting point, but it's definitely not intended to be an ending point. So, uh, I've got two applications for you. Number one. If you're already giving 10%, then I think it's imperative that you spend the next few moments listening to God to see if he wants your generosity to increase. I will admit, for a long time, I've kind of viewed 10% as the goal. And I've been there for a really long time. Uh, giving that's not that hard for me anymore. And one of the things God wanted to say to me this week uh, was that I need to pay attention. Brenda and I, uh, she's kind of hearing this for the first time in front of all of you. Uh, we need to pray. We need to continue to ask God if we're using the money that he's given us generously, wisely, in a way that honors him, sees the mission of uh, his kingdom moving forward. The second thing is if you're not yet giving 10%, then I'm going to ask you to sign up for the 90-day tithe challenge. 
That's what's on your thing. If you're not giving 10%, I'm going to ask you to sign up that you will do the 90-day tithe challenge for the next three months to give 10% of your income. Now, if at the end of that three months, you don't think that God has blessed you in your generosity, we will give you back all the money that you have given in that time, no questions asked. You ask for it back, we'll give it back. You're like, I don't, you don't even have to tell us why you don't think God blessed you. You can just say, nope, I don't think so, I want my money back. We'll do it, money back guarantee. Is that cheesy? Yes, this is so cheesy. Can we all acknowledge that? A money back guarantee on your giving to God, that's super cheesy, all right? But here's the deal. I believe so thoroughly that God will bless you and that you will find such joy in generosity that I don't mind putting out a super cheesy challenge if it will help you start. What does God want you to do? I want to finish with this last story. Somebody who's actually on our leadership team that the 90-day tithe challenge we did two years ago was life-changing for them. He says, we started partially giving about five, seven years ago, but it wasn't 10%, and I confess that I treated our donations as just something like a monthly bill. The schedule of it all kept me writing the checks, but let me be honest, I was holding out. When you introduced the 90-day tithe challenge in 2017, something in me moved, and I began to pray about it. He says, I went to Malachi and read chapter 3, verse 10, several times. That's the passage that's on your card. Jesus speaking to Israel. And Jesus says, uh, you've been robbing me because you haven't been bringing your tithe into the storehouse of God. And he says, do it and see if I won't bless your socks off. Now, uh, I don't think that this has a perfect one-to-one application to you in the New Testament. But here's what I do think. That the application, the spirit of the application is absolutely true for all of us today. So he says, I was reading that. He says, one evening I was in prayer and I felt the spirit speak to me. Following The following are a few comments I wrote down in my journal from our conversation that evening. And I've seen a picture of his journal. These were the things he wrote down. He says, I'm not good at trusting but I need to step out in faith. Do you ever feel that way? I'm not good at trusting, but, I, but God, I know I need to do this. The second thing he says is, God told me that it's time for our family to commit to a full tithe and let go. And then he felt like God spoke these two things to him. Number one, he said, I felt like God asked me, do you trust me? And then he said, I felt like God say, test me. Just test me and see what happens. I wrote these words on October 4th, 2017, And the first check was written. Two days later, on Friday, October 6, 2017, my company announced that several hundred people would be laid off. Thanks a lot, Lord. I was beside myself with worry and doubt, he says. God just told me to trust him, but how could I possibly give 10% and write this check? Needless to say, I went back to God and did my best to challenge his request. I said to him, how can you do this to me? How can I possibly trust you? And he said, God was quiet despite my wrestling with him. Isn't that frustrating? He said, I had the checks in my hand ready to tear them up, but a peace fell over me. I was determined to trust. On Monday, October 9th, 2017, I watched many of my colleagues have their lives turned upside down. I was walked up to the front of the building as well, but my job was spared. I would now have to work, though, in Lansing, and there was no guarantee that another round of layoffs would not happen. October came and went, 
I started applying for jobs, and yes, I fulfilled my promise to tithe in November. Fear was a constant battle, and the more fear came down on me, the more I leaned into God. Trust kept me going. November was an interesting month, and if I fast forward to the beginning of December, I resigned my job on December 4th, exactly two months to the day that God asked me to decide to trust with him with this. I was offered a new position in Grand Rapids, and my last day in my old job was December 29th, the last day of the 90-day tithe challenge. When I look back and reflect on those days, I realize that the tithe challenge was not about money. I know that God doesn't need my money. What he really wants is a relationship. How can we have a meaningful relationship if there is no trust? The tithe challenge broke down walls where, God compart- uh, where I kept God compartmentalized. I began to trust God by obeying what he asked me to do, and God was faithful. Friends, I want you to know that God. I want you to know that God. He is faithful. He meets our needs, and he is generous. And he has blessed us so that we can be a blessing. Trust me in this. I've experienced the truth of it in my own life. And God's not finished with me yet. He's not finished with us yet. But friends, we've got work to do. If you'll trust that God is generous, and God wants to bless you, I promise you will find God's blessing all over your life. Father, we want to serve you. We want to trust you. And God, we want to be generous with our money. Not because you need it, but because you know that it's in that place of how we spend our money that shows what we truly value, what we truly believe in. And God, what we fall for now affects our future and it affects our eternity. So God, let us trust that what you call us to is actually for our betterment. We want to experience the life of Jesus, a life marked by giving, a life marked by sacrificial giving for your name, for your glory. Pray all these things.